Well, good morning to you all. My name is Dan Meyer, and I am the pastor of the other Christ Church in the Chicago area, uh, Christ Church of Oak Brook, where I've served for the last 17 years. And uh, early on in my journey here, I was blessed to be connected with a guy named Mike Woodruff. Any of you heard of him? Uh, Mike and I became friends and have uh, developed just a wonderful relationship over many years now. And the staff of our church and the staff of your church have connected and uh, have formed a bond and we've done retreats at each other's houses and uh, I just continue to feel a great sense of connection to you. So I know you a little bit. Maybe you don't know me. That's okay. I have respected deeply your great ministry and I have looked forward so much to coming and uh, I just thank you for the privilege of having the opportunity to talk with you today. We need strong churches in America today. Uh, our homes need it, our households, our workplaces, our communities. Our nation needs strong churches, uh, churches that are very clear on who they are and what they have been given to do and whose they are above all else. And that's why I decided that maybe the most helpful thing I could do during our brief time together this morning is to reflect a little bit with you on the vision that God has for what a church is. And I'm going to be doing that today through the lens of one of my favorite passages of the Bible, Romans chapter 12. And you may find it helpful to take out a Bible and open it up to Romans 12 because I'm going to be walking through a great deal of that text in the course of my comments. I won't read it uh, top to bottom right now because it's going to be uh, projected for you and we're going to be reading out loud some of those uh, particular verses as we go on. Uh, but you'll find it useful to have the uh, the scriptures open on your lap as we walk through. To put it in a nutshell, Romans 12 is a, a primer, it's a basic introduction to the particular attitudes and behaviors that characterize the most evolved form of love there is. Uh, you're probably aware that uh, the Bible uh, uses different words depending on a different sense of love. Sometimes it uses the Greek word eros to suggest romantic love. Sometimes it's philia to suggest friendship or filial love. Sometimes it uses the term agape, meaning unconditional love. That's 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Um, but when agape indwells not just an individual, but an entire community of people, it takes that community of people up to that highest form of love for which it uses the word Koinonia. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that word, koinonia. Now, many of you will know that the word koinonia comes from the, word, uh, from the root word koinos, which means in common. And it is usually translated in the English Bibles that we have in our hands by the word fellowship, as in fellowship hall or fellowship supper. What I want you to understand, however, is that in its strictest, deepest biblical meaning, the word koinonia, or fellowship, has nothing in common with that kind of polite chit-chat over weak church coffee uh, definition of fellowship that, it, that it's often come to mean in our culture and time. In reality, this koinonia, this kind of bondedness, is much more like an experience I had way back when I was in college many years ago, and I was part of the a heavyweight crew team at, at my alma mater. 
And I want to use that particular experience as something of a metaphor, if I may, to string together some of the most important ideas in Romans chapter 12 for us. You with me so far? Okay. Well, if you've ever seen a, um, a crew or a rowing event uh, happen in front of you, maybe you watched a clip out of the Olympics uh, a couple of years ago, or you've seen a, a rowing boat go by in the river or out on the lake or on a television program, if you've ever seen it in action, then you know that rowing is a sport that demands an extraordinary amount of individual effort. Uh, you train approximately 900 hours for every one hour of actual competition. You are, you are lifting weights, you're doing calisthenics, you are running up and down staircases, you are uh, in, in the winter times inside of, a, of, a, of an indoor uh, crew tank, rowing in, in bathtubs, you're, you're sitting in front of a torture device called an ergometer, you've seen them in your health club, maybe you've used them, you're just pulling away and pulling away 900 hours to just one hour of actual competition. And 60 seconds into any crew race, every single molecule and muscle in your body is shouting, stop, <laughs> right? You're, you're in such excruciating extension of your endurance that your body is telling you this, this shouldn't continue. And so when Paul says to us at the start of Romans chapter 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, for this is your act of spiritual worship. I can't help but think of that whole rowing experience because it was a sacrificial experience. It was a challenging religion, and God used it in my own life. I was a relatively new believer to teach me a lot about our spirituality, about the faith of the Christian church. And that's why I'm, I'm bothering you with this metaphor today. Now, an eight-person crew shell is about 60 feet long. So it's about the length of this space, uh, give or take, right? It has uh, eight seats in it and a small seat in the back for the usually a smaller person that steers the boat called the coxswain. It's made of carbon fiber these days. Uh, and the fiber is so thin and so light, it's like an eggshell. Your foot would go right through it if you put your weight on it. That's why it's called a crew shell, if you understand that, that image. And the object of rowing is to get everybody moving forward at the same time on their seat. Everybody's got a seat. It's on a, on a set of tracks with rollers, like roller skates, right underneath your hindquarters. And the job is, to, the purpose is to get everybody moving forward on their seat up to what's called the stop at the front of the track, and then it, at that moment they reach that point, they move their wrists upwards, which translates across the long oar into the blade, and the blade drops into the water, and then everybody pulls back at the same time. They drive their legs hard, and then their lower back, and then their arms, and then they feather their wrists down again, and that pops the blade up and out of the water again, and then they begin the same process over and over again. And this is what you do, stroke after stroke, for 2,000 meters. Now, what makes this complicated, particularly complicated, is, that, is the delicate balance in a cruise shell. A, a cruise shell is like an ice skate, okay? It really is like an ice skate. All it takes is for one person anywhere in that boat to so much as drop a shoulder in fatigue, and the whole boat tilts to that side making it impossible for the people on this side to get their wars out of the water, and these ones are just flailing around up in the air, right? So, so the balance 
is, is critical. Everybody has to be on the same line. And furthermore, you've got just all of these different shapes and sizes in the boat of people, right? In our particular boat, we had a 5 foot 10 inch person of maybe 170, 75 pounds, all the way up to 6 foot 10, 240 pound, you know, behemoths of, of, of people. We had art history majors and engineers. We had a German, a Canadian, a, a Scotsman, uh, you know, all of these different nationalities and backgrounds. It was a recipe for war, if ever there was one. Uh, but, the, but the goal is to get this multiplicity, this diversity of kinds of people, all working together. One mind, one body, one will, for every stroke over the course of that 2,000 um, meter uh, race course. And, and, and if you do not have people working together, you not only uh, have trouble keeping the balance, but, but as all of those bodies, roughly three-quarters of a ton of human being, rushes on these rollers to the back of the boat, it will cause the boat to actually check backwards in the water. And so the boat will go along like this, back and forth. You know, two steps forward, one step back, all, all the race course. Few crews ever achieve the kind of unity necessary to minimize that particular motion for more than a few moments in any given race. But here's the key part. No crew worth its salt, once they've experienced that kind of unity, ever stops dreaming of living there all the time. Okay? I want you to remember that. Because you are the crew of Christ. Paul puts it in a slightly different metaphor. He says, you're the body. You're the body of Christ. And I suppose you're probably seeing the tie-in here. The church is this really strange entity. It, it, it is a body comprised of many individual members. Each of you have your story, your own experience and, and background. Uh, but but this, these various members are conjoined together in in a sublime purpose that's larger than any individual member is. Paul says, just as each of us has one body with many members, limbs, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, this is a countercultural idea, if that's not obvious already. Uh, we, you and I live in a world that is constantly driving us to think of ourselves in individualistic terms. Uh, you know, right? It, it's about my needs and my preferences and my buying habits and, and my program and my agenda and my arrangements. The world is constantly driving us to, to think of self. Which is why Paul goes on to say, no, you must no longer conform to the pattern of this world. If you're going to experience the life of the kingdom of God, the purposes for which you have been uh, created and, and redeemed, then you must no longer pattern yourself after the world, but, but instead adopt this new mindset, this new way of being. Now that you belong to me, says Jesus, in effect, so you also belong to everyone else who belongs to me. Now that you belong to Jesus, so you also belong to the part of the body meeting on the Lake Forest campus. So you belong to the folks down in Oak Brook, and they to you, right? 
If you belong to me, so you belong to everyone else who belongs to me, who's part of my body. And what that means in practice is what I want to think about with you today. For one thing, it means that we are zealous in bringing our best to the team. That's the first big idea I hope you'll absorb. That's, that if you really take in what, what Paul is saying here, it means you will be really zealous in bringing the very best that you have and are to the common effort of, of the team. Paul says we have different gifts. Uh, we have different gifts according to the grace that has been given to us. I've seen that already. Um, some of us have the gift of making music. Some of us have the gift of standing up and providing a warm welcome. Some of us have the gift of teaching and are perhaps exercising that this morning. Some of us have the, the gift of, uh, of extending hospitality to the newcomer. Some of us have the gift of, of prophetic wisdom. We're the ones that name the brutal facts nobody else wants to look at. Uh, some of us have the, the gift of rendering mercy or providing practical, quiet help to people in times of, of need. Some of us are gifted with the power of encouragement or prayer. But whatever your gift is, whatever your shape is, your job is to bring that to the life of the whole. We have to be, be very clear as the people of God that each and every one of us is needed. We, 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 we can't possibly row this boat as fast or as far as it's meant to go without everybody zealously taking hold of the oars, okay? There are no spectators in church. Every other environment you enter into that you're sitting in rows like this, you're basically a spectator. There, that doesn't exist in the body of Christ, right? We're not consumers, we're contributors, every single one of us. I, I caught a glimpse of this truth at the end of my freshman year uh, exams were over and uh, as is the tradition I went to a, a college in, in Connecticut called Yale and they have had a long tradition of at the end of the year taking their freshman crew teams and their varsity teams and sending them out to a facility that Yale owns on the banks of the Thames River in Connecticut I'm not mispronouncing that that's how they pronounce it there the Thames River and um, in a place called New London uh, is a, an old farmhouse, a rather large, multi-storied one that houses the Yale crew. And our job is to live there for a month after exams are over, and we train in the mornings and in the afternoons and in the, and in the early evenings for one purpose. You know what that purpose is? To beat Harvard. <laughs> to beat Harvard. Because just down the river at another ancient facility, the Harvard crew is doing the exact same thing with the singular purpose of beating Yale. And we have been doing this for more than a century. In fact, that particular year was the 100th rowing of the Yale-Harvard regatta. It is the oldest intercollegiate sporting event in American history. And uh, we were really, really intent upon accomplishing our purposes uh, when we gathered there. That particular year, the Harvard crew coach was also the United States Olympic coach. And he said that his freshman team was the, unqualifiedly, best freshman team, not only in the nation, and they were by record, but the best he'd ever seen, he'd ever coached in his storied career. And we were not. You know, we were, we were a middling team. And by race day, 
a lot of tension had begun to mount up around um, this race, at least from our vantage point. There were all kinds of spectators gathered. There were pleasure craft lined up and down the course. There would be about 10,000 or 20,000 people on the banks of the river to watch the race. Uh, alumni were walking through our compound inspecting us as if we were racehorses, you know, at the Belmont Stakes or the Preakness or something, thinking, yeah, that one should have eaten a little more, trained a little harder. Uh, and it was just, it was a very tense time. I had that kind of, have you ever been so nervous you're sick to your stomach? Raise your hand if you've ever been there. You know, you know that feeling. I couldn't sit still. I, I got up and I went for a long walk with, with one of my teammates, a fellow by the name of Francis Xavier O'Brien IV. You know what nationality he, he, he was. And Franny and I went out down this country lane. We walked for maybe 20, 25 minutes without saying a word. And finally, I just could not stand the silence any longer. And I turned to him. I said, Fran, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? And he stopped and he turned to me. Fran has a glass eye. The other one fixed me. Looks like a young James Con. And Francis says, Dan, I'm thinking that when we get out there today, I'm not going to let you down. I'm not going to let you down. What if every time you walked in to this place, that was in your mind? You looked into the eyes of anybody that you met here and you thought to yourself, I'm not going to let you down. I'm going to zealously bring my best to this common effort. What if every time there was an announcement from up here that we needed a Sunday school teacher or we needed somebody to lead this particular ministry or we just needed helping hands in some way in some area, there was a chorus. You stormed the sign-up table because in your heart was this commitment to zealously bringing the very, very best you possibly could to the team. This is one of the principal characters of the body of Christ when it's functioning properly. Love, Paul says, has to be sincere. It must be sincere. It can't just be words. It's not something that's painted on a wall. It's not something that's just in the air. Love has to be in our hearts, a commitment to work for and with one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, says Paul. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Does that zealous commitment to bring your best mark your life and experience in the body of Christ? Secondly, belonging to one another means we exercise a humble hospitality toward one another. We exercise a humble hospitality to each other. Paul puts it like this. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Practice hospitality. Do not be proud or conceited, but be willing to associate with people different from you. Honor one another above yourselves. The only thing that's worse than people who don't know how important it is that they zealously bring their very best to the team are people who don't know how important it is that others are bringing their best. We've met those people, right? The people who can only see what they're doing, who miss the contributions of all the other people that are involved in the process. You and I are going to be living in koinonia, at least moving towards it, when every one of us walks the halls of our respective church buildings, or maybe your household, or maybe your workplace, 
just praising God for all of the other people here. And then the first thought when you walk through the door is, gosh, I wonder if the sermon will be any good today. That's no longer the thought. You're just walking in and you see all these faces and you go, yeah, the team's here. The team is assembling. When we start praising God for the differences we see around us, thank goodness that person doesn't look at it like I do. Thank goodness they're shaped and gifted and of a different generation than I am. Thank goodness because that brings such strength to the team. When we're committed to reaching out in humble hospitality towards people that are walking in our door because we're thinking, ah, God's bringing us. Somebody else will fill a critical seat in the boat. When we're seeing our lives this way and one another that way and honoring each other in this kind of way that shows that we know we cannot possibly row this boat properly without every single person with their hands on the oars, not letting each other down, when all hands, all hearts are working that way, we will be touching koinonia. Are you with me? Do you see how this works? This is something of what Jesus sees us to be about. Koinonia means, thirdly, that we prize our unity above almost anything else. You know, the church of Jesus is not known for its unanimity, right? We don't always see things eye to eye. We don't always like the same songs. We don't uh, always respond to the same teaching styles. Uh, we have different ways of doing the tasks and the ministries of the church. We will never have complete unanimity. At congregational annual meetings, we'll sometimes raise questions that reflect those differences. That's okay. Unity is not the same as unanimity, but we need to try and prize our unity so highly that we keep our differences from destroying us. I don't want to minimize this, or I don't want to minimize the reality that we, we will sometimes need to tussle. Christianity is an athletic business. It's not for wimps. Uh, sometimes we just have to speak up when we see something going amiss. We're told by Paul in Romans 13, hate 12, hate what is evil, hate what is evil. Don't be wishy-washy about that. You think something's problematic, name it. But cling to what is good. Make sure you're clinging to what is good as you're naming what you think is wrong. And so when our teammates rub us wrong, the question is, will we prize our unity so much, our common cause so much, that we'll handle that moment of disagreement with grace? That's not happening in our culture. Have you noticed this? Have you been seeing Washington lately? Right? We've lost the ability as a society to handle differences with grace, to be civil with our convictions. And, and the challenge in our, in our day is that those who are civil don't seem to have convictions, and those who have convictions don't seem able to be civil. We must be the different kind of colony, the different kind of community. So Paul says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Bless and do not curse. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Live in harmony with one another. As far as it depends upon you, this is the key part, because not everything depends on you, but you depend on you. Your behavior, you've got control over that. As far as it depends upon you, strive to live at peace with everyone. 
Living in koinonia means prizing our unity above almost everything else. Fourthly, it means that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we mourn with those who mourn. You know, an amazing thing happened out at that facility on the Thames River so many years ago. As we um, came to that place and began sharing common meals and doing all day long together and working out and talking and playing games and laughing and in some cases even praying with each other, we began to overcome the frictional points in our differences. The squabbles that had sort of divided us as a team began to melt away and we began to see each other with new eyes. And we started learning some new rhythms together. And every one of us started focusing now on bringing our best and not worrying so much about what everybody else was working as hard as we were. And we began encouraging each other. And, and through this variety of subtle changes in the life of our community, we became a faster and faster crew. Such that on race day, as we lined up against the greatest freshman crew in American history, according to the coach, um, and the starting gun went off, we blew off the starting line like, an, like a jet off of an aircraft carrier. And we left the greatest crew in the nation in our bubbling wake within a few seconds. It was the most amazing feeling. I mean, they were receding in the distance as we were just flying down the course. And all of us were just so exultant. We were, we were laughing, literally laughing in the boat. And it was about to get better because we were going to come around the bend in the river and we were going to come down that stretch where that huge crowd of people could see us row. And what was so exciting, at least in my heart, I think in that of others in the group, was what this would mean for Guy Gregoire, our little coxswain, the little guy that was driving the boat. Because you see, New London, Connecticut, where the our house was in the Thames River there, was his hometown. And, and we were going to be coming around the corner of that bend, and his mom and dad and his aunts and uncles and his cousins and the guys and gals he went to high school with, they're going to be there. And Guy was going to be a hometown hero. They'd already written articles about him in the newspaper locally. It was just going to be such a wonderful finish for Guy. And then it happened. And then it happened. I mean, like this. I don't know if it was because the, the stroke um, oarsman, the, the one that sets the pace, who sits right in front of the coxswain, Andy Messer, just happened to be this huge 220-pound, 6-foot-4-inch Canadian guy and was just so big and maybe Guy couldn't quite see around him enough or, or whether it was because Guy never had really good eyesight in the first place. But somehow, Guy steers us too close to this seven-foot-tall buoy on the river, a channel can. And the lead oar in our boat goes crashing into that big channel can. And it rips the oar right up out of the oarlock, and it takes the outrigger that the oarlock is set in, and it bends it down into the water like a water break, and the impact is so hard that it splits the keel of our boat and we start taking on water and we grind to a halt when a crew team is has won a race 
one of the things you always do is baptize your coxswain. Uh, it's one of the it's top picture there on the, on, the, on the right. It's one of the ways you celebrate it. You take the little guy or gal and you lift them up and you hurl them into the water. It's like dropping them in the champagne. It's a way of rejoicing and celebrating together. At this particular moment, in this particular race, we wanted to drown the coxswain. Guy had wrecked everything for us. 900 hours, right? More than that of training for this moment, for this historic race. And we were winning it. We were going to blow them away. And he'd ruined it completely for all of us. And we knew it. And we could hear him sobbing back at his seat. Sound coming through the loudspeakers in the boat. And we began to sob too. And it wasn't just for us. It was for him. It was for what this loss, this act meant for him. In front of not just his crew, but his whole hometown. This is the way it is in the body of Christ. We rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Something good happens in their life, and we are all in to the celebration. Something bad happens, something painful, a loss, a circumstance, a, a failure of some kind, and we're mourning. We're mourning as a body with one another because we belong to one another. There, there is one further sign of koinonia that, that bears our attention, and I want to share it with you before we go. We don't win all of our races in the body of Christ, okay? We go through hard seasons. Sometimes we missteer badly. Some, sometimes we, we bang into stuff. Sometimes we fail. We miscalculate. Sometimes things just happen to us in some horrific, unpredictable way. But, but belonging to one another in Christ means that we do not give up hope when these things happen, okay? We never give up hope. Our team refuses to give up hope. Paul says, we resolve to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. I want you to say that out loud with me. We are to be what? Joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And I remember at, as Harvard cruised past us that day, and they just went right past us. They were flailing at that point, but they could not believe their good fortune, and they sailed right past us. I remember Guy somehow pulls it together, and he just starts urging us. to. He counts out the strokes and tries to get us going, and we somehow, it wasn't pretty. We were dragging that sinking bathtub of a boat across the finish line uh, behind the victors. And, it, and, and in rowing, there's this, there's this tradition that when you lose a race, the loser has to go up to the other boat and you literally take the shirt off your back and you give it to the other, to the winner as the spoil of the victory. It's a humiliating thing. And we did that. And we went back to our locker rooms and we took our showers in silence. came out of the locker rooms 
And the coach called us together for a team meeting. And he says, guys, you had a hard day today, didn't you? Yeah, we had a hard day. He said, you know, the, the chief benefactor of our crew program, Mr. George Pugh, Pugh Charitable Trust, he was here today and he saw what happened out there. And more than that, he saw how you guys handled it. And so he has asked me to come to you today and tell you that he has decided that he is going to put up all of the money required to send you on an all-expense-paid trip to the Wimbledon of rowing, the Super Bowl of rowing, the Henley Royal Regatta in England. Gentlemen, this season is not over. How many times in the life of the body has the season seemed over? How many times has a tragedy happened, uh, a loss, a failure, a struggle of some kind, and the influential days, the, the glory days, the sunrise days seem to be long past? How many times has the body of Christ tended to lose its hope? Maybe you're in that place in your life right now. You're hanging dead tired over your oars. You are finding it hard to have hope or to even pray or to feel any kind of ability for patience. And to you, I just want to say this. Please never forget who your great benefactor is, who the great head of the church is, the one who leads this team. Because he is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. When we got to Henley, we lined up in the first race against a crew from Cambridge University. I mean the real Cambridge this time, not the Boston one, the one in England. These guys were from the storied university. They were cut, they looked strong, they were prepared. And when the starting gun went off, we were still filled with the memory of our failures in recent times, right? We were nervous about it. We were overcome by the pageantry because there are 100,000 spectators at Henley. Okay, and the ambassador to the United, from the United States to the Court of St. James is in the motor launch following the boats in our, in our race. And we're overwhelmed by the sense of moment and the remembrance of what we didn't do last time. And when the, the gun goes off, we just struggle to sort of start. And the Cambridge crew are like a machine. And they go, and they explode out of sight behind us. And our hearts absolutely and then that little nearsighted coxswain in the back of the boat says, gentlemen, this race is not over. I want a power 10 on my mark. One. Two. Three. And on and on. He called out. There was something I neglected to tell you when I was describing the mechanics of rowing a little earlier. It's what happens when this group of eight individuals and the person driving the boat actually become one. When they are moving as one and breathing as one and aspiring as one body. When that happens, 
suddenly the, the, the strokes become more powerful than anything you've ever experienced before, and yet strangely easier to muster than before. And the boat will actually stop its backward checking in the water when you're moving at exactly the same time, and it starts to move in this steady line. And it, it, it lifts up out of the water, and it begins to hydroplane along the surface, and you can hear the sss of the sound. And it moves at the most phenomenal speed. It feels almost supernatural. We beat the Cambridge University crew by the length of a football field. That moment, when it all comes together in rowing, is called swing. It's called swing. Do you know what it's called when it all comes together in the body of Christ? It's called koinonia. No church lives there every moment, but no church worth its salt ever stops dreaming of living there all of the time. What's your dream for Christ Church? How invested can you be in the life of the team? How will you look at those around you and work with them? Let me share with you one last photograph, if I may, from the last 100 meters of that race. We were very close to the finish line. And if you zoom in further in the next slide, you'll see that the third person from the back, the one who looks really dog-tired, that's me. I had 101 fever that particular day. And if you look behind that person, you'll see in the pavilion a shadowed figure of, uh, looks like a woman in a straw hat standing up. She is standing up. She's standing up to applaud the victors. And she is Queen Elizabeth. Brothers and sisters, in an infinitely larger, more impressive sense, the king is on his feet, awaiting the finish of your race. Never forget the power of the great benefactor and the hope that he has for you and the power he can work out through you. And as you go forth to serve him this day, to be the body of Christ, I hope you'll join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the inestimable privilege of being your servants in this church at this time and for the sake of the world enable us to be it all to be all that we can be in the name of jesus we pray